Okay, you do know that the Bible is a unique book. According to Desi Maxwell, it is the only true extraterrestrial book. Eat your heart out, Harry Potter. It was dictated by God to approximately 40 men of diverse backgrounds over the course of some 1,500 years. So you have the like of Isaiah, a prophet, you have Ezra, a priest, you have Matthew, a tax collector, you have um, Peter, who was a fisherman, you have Paul, who was a tent maker. And yet it was Paul who wrote in Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 and 13, he urged the young Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of scripture, which we do in this church. In 2 Timothy 3, it says, all scripture, including the section we're about to read, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And in Hebrews 4 and 12, it says the word of God is living and active. This is no ordinary book. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And bear these thoughts in mind as I read today's passage, which is Colossians 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. And thankfully, I can read this passage without any prejudice because I'm unmarried, I have no children, I'm happily retired, and I'm an orphan, (laughs) okay? So, how we function as a church and how we should live as individuals is governed by this book. And if you don't have a Bible, take one from one of the windowsills, and if you don't own it, take one home with you as a gift and stop laughing. At the end of the reading... (laughs) I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond with sincerity. Thanks be to God. So, reading from Colossians 3, verse uh, 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And Andrew will explain what submit means. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, workers, employees, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, your bosses, your managers, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, managers, bosses, treat your employees justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Father, just pray for Andrew as he comes now to um, open this passage for us. Pray that we would have open hearts and ears to hear what he says, that it would be your words that he would be saying. And Father, this is so countercultural, and this is what you are. You are the countercultural God. And so we just ask that you, by your spirit, would reveal your truths to us this morning and that we would seek to implement them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks, Barbara. Uh, unlike Barbara, I am not an orphan. I'm a kind of half an orphan. Uh, I am married. I do have kids. I am an employer and an employee. So uh, lots of prejudice on my heart that I need to be aware of this morning. Uh, I wonder if you ever heard anybody given words to live by? Do you know when people say, these are words to live by? It's usually a phrase or a guiding principle. They say, these are words to live by. Well, a quick, quick Google search this week for me brought me to planetofsuccess.com, which, and I quote, is the self-proclaimed, here's the quote, the number one choice when it comes to motivation, self-growth, and empowerment. And thankfully, they have created a handy list of the 75 best words to live by. According to, according, I'm not going to read all 75, that would be absurd, and most of them are ridiculous. According to planetofsuccess.com, they start with John Lennon, because why not, of course. Um, and he said, which doesn't make much sense to me, he says, count your age by your friends, not years. Count your life by smiles, not tears. Maybe there's wisdom in that. I don't really know what it means. And sometimes your friends are the ones who cause you the tears. Secondly, there is Eleanor Roosevelt, who generally I quite admire, but she said, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Uh, consent. I don't really know what that means, but thanks, Eleanor. Then I find my absolute favorite on the list. This is the top 75, um, top 75 words to live by. And the first one on the list was by world-renowned philosopher and deep thinker, Robert Downey Jr. That's right. <laughs> RDJ, Iron Man. I'm not sure. Why would you live your life by something Iron Man said? I'm not really sure. But this is what he said. Robert Downey Jr. said, listen, smile, agree, and then do whatever you were going to do anyway. <laughs> That's his words to live by. I don't know if he's married or not, but he must have a really nice sofa. So, um... <laughs> and also, it's just a bit disrespectful. and It doesn't sound very wise. And of course, I'm having fun. But there's a serious question underneath all of this, because whether we know it or not, we all have principles and, and words and guiding principles that we live by. And, and, and sometimes they're inherited from our families. And you're like, why do I believe that? And it's like, because that's the way you're brought up. But as you get older, it tends to be things that you consciously put into your life to live by. But for Christians, for us who are in Jesus, there is only one, believe it or not, only one guiding principle to live by. For those of us here in Jesus, who Paul says earlier in this letter that we saw last week, who have died with Jesus and been raised to life in him, we now have one guiding principle to live by, and everything else in our lives falls under this category. For us as Christians, our words to live by, honor Jesus in every part of our lives. Honor Jesus in every part of our lives. This is kind of Paul's summary of this whole letter. This is what he's been getting at to, in his letter to this young church in, uh, in Colossae. He starts with looking at who Christ is. He's, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of the creation. He's the Lord of all. He's the one who made everything. Uh, that Everything was not just made by him, but for him and through him. And then he says, and because of who Jesus is, your old self has died. If you're a Christian, your old way of life has died and you've been raised to a new life and so now your new life is going to honor Jesus because he is Lord. And he sums this up in verse 17. I think I have it on the screen. If you don't go back up one verse from where we started, verse 17, and he says this, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What would our lives look like if we put that into practice? Very simply, we're, we are to honor the Lord Jesus in everything we say and do. In every area of our lives, nothing is off limits for Jesus. We are to live every part of our lives in such a way that brings honor to the name of the Lord Jesus. So in verse 17, he says, honor the Lord Jesus. And then in the passage Barbara just read for us, he gives us some specific ways to live that out in our lives with others. 
And Paul focuses in on, on home and family life because households are the building blocks of society. What happens in the home doesn't just stay in the home, it actually affects and shapes all of society. And in that culture, the household would have been made up of the husband and wife, uh, the parents and the kids, uh, and, and the bond servants who, who, who lived and worked in the home too. They were all part of the same household. Now, when we come to any passage of Scripture, um, but, but particularly one that challenges us, the temptation is to make it about ourselves, isn't it? Uh, we say, what's good for me? Uh, what is most comfortable for me? Or even, that's not fair on me. Uh, and so, even though this passage has instructions for us, I want to point out, firstly, that it's not about us. In everything we do, honor the Lord. Seven times in, these, in this really short passage, the Lord is mentioned. It, verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, pleasing the Lord. Verse 22, fearing the Lord. 20, verse 23, working for the Lord. Verse 23, again, receive an inheritance in the Lord. Verse 23, serving the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, you have a master, i.e. the Lord, in heaven. And so we need to approach every passage of the Bible, but this passage, not with an attitude of, what do I think about this? Rather, how does this passage teach me to honor Jesus? What is this passage saying about Jesus? We have been raised from death to life in him, and so everything in, is done in his name, and that means following his instructions and living the way he uh, instructs us to. Our lives are no longer about us. If you're a Christian, your life is no longer yours. In fact, Paul says elsewhere, you have, uh, you, it, you have died, and it is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. Not that certain parts of our lives are Christian, but that every part of our lives is given over to the authority and control of the Lord Jesus. Christ is all and Christ is in all. So our instruction this morning is really simple. Honor Jesus in every part of your life, in your marriages, in your parenting, and in your work. So let's start with this first one. Honor Christ in your marriage. Have a look at verses 18 to 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Colossians 3.18. Everybody's favorite Bible verse. <laughs> Suddenly, everyone's trying to volunteer and kids this morning. <laughs> I'm trying to volunteer and kids to get out of it. Um, but firstly, we need to see that this is not a one-sided instruction. And we can't treat it as such. Barbara said that I was going to explain what this word means. But equally important, and maybe even more important in our context and culture, is explaining the instruction to the husbands as well. And if, because in marriage, what happens is husband and wife become one flesh. And if we split them up, we're actually losing something of God's vision of, of, of the beauty of marriage. And so often, the focus has been placed on just the instruction for wives, and that is wrong. God has something to say, not just for wives, but for husbands too. Because it is our marriage together, husband and wife, that paints the picture of the gospel. And a wife or a husband cannot do that on their own. Now, if you're single, don't just switch off. Because you might be married someday. And even if you never marry, you have to hold us married people to account about how our marriages portray the gospel. So this is for you too. And likewise, if you're dating or engaged, or whatever, then pay attention, because Paul is describing the kind of godly marriage that you should be aiming for. Because why? Verse 17, everything is about honoring Jesus. Now, when we come to verses like Colossians 3.18, we get a bit squirmy. 
We even reject it completely. We try and deflect with humor, don't we? And we do this for three reasons, I think. Firstly, because of sin and the fall. We, we have sinful hearts and, and we're, we're wired to reject anybody ever telling us what to do or how to think. We're born with a rebellion in our hearts against God and his good ways. But also, we, we kind of bristle at verses like this because of misunderstanding. We come to the text with our presuppositions and ideas of what the passage means. And, and what we object to may not actually be what God is saying. That's important to bear in mind. But thirdly, and also really importantly, we are cautious about verses like this and the verses about slaves and masters and so on, because they have been misused. The Bible will confront us and challenge us. But in different parts of the world and at different times throughout history, we, people find, various people find various parts of the Bible more confronting and more challenging. Because God is about confronting sin and, and culture and all that kind of stuff. And so for us right now, verse 18 in particular is one of those verses. You see, because of the abuse of women throughout history, we are rightly wary of anything that would seem to fall into that category. We rightfully want to avoid and clearly and openly and forcefully reject anything that continues the abuse or oppression of women. And so we need to openly and clearly reject all the ways that these verses have been misused and mistreated and abused and instead let the word of God, which as Barbara reminded us, is good, speak to us and see what he has to say for us, and then apply, apply it to our lives. So what is Paul saying? Well, Paul has given us a picture of Christ honoring marriage. It's like, you planned that. I said Christ honors mar marriage, and they just walked through the door. A picture of Christ honoring marriage in which both husband and wife honor one another by putting each other first. In Christ-honoring marriage, let's be clear about this, both husband and wife will honor one another by putting each other first. You see, submission in this context does not mean inferiority. In fact, the problem is that when we take this word in isolation, which we're really tempted to do, and which sadly many people have done and still do, if we take that word in isolation, we lose what Paul has in mind here. The instruction isn't just submission, it's submission as is fitting in the Lord. It means submission in a way that pertains to the Lord. So last week we saw how we were putting on like an outfit. We're putting off the old stuff and we're clothing ourselves in Christ. And it's almost like he's saying, if we, if we do this, we will wear clothes that are a good fit for the Lord. This is a good fit for the Lord. It doesn't mean be subject to, like being bought into slavery. But if we take the phrase as a whole, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, what Paul has in mind here, we see, is a cooperative demeanor that puts others first. Something that every single follower of Christ should have. It's a glad and willful cooperation with the partner God has given you and with whom you are now one flesh. The goal is a happy relationship, not male domination. In fact, the instructions to husbands strictly forbids male domination. The picture we're given, God's intention for marriage, is a wife freely and gladly following the self-sacrificial, servant-hearted and loving leadership of a devoted husband. It is not being forced to bend to the will of a harsh, domineering, self-centered, abusive pig. The Bible in no way is advocating blind obedience. In fact, Notice the difference. In this passage, it's children and bond servants who are called to obey, not wives. 
And if your husband is abusing you, I want, I want you to hear this, you are not called to follow him. If you are being abused, you need to get yourself to safety, and we want to help you with that, because your husband is not being godly. He's abandoning his marriage vows. He's disobeying Jesus. And if you are being abused, please let us know. I mean, speak to Lauren. We, we want to help, and, and we're doing work behind the scenes on safeguarding it so that when we get this done, we'll provide clear pathways for this kind of thing and provision. But glad and willing cooperation with your husband is honoring to Christ. The marriage relationship, remember, was the first relationship that was twisted and distorted by the fall. Willing cooperation with one another became conflict and struggle. But in Christ, we will be married in ways that reclaim and redeem what God is, what we will reclaim what God has, has created and we will redeem what sin has broken. So husbands are called to love and not be harsh. Now you think, maybe that's not such a big instruction because love, clearly you should love your wife. But in Paul's day, this was radical. See, in our culture, the motive for marriage is love, right? You know all those stories and, and films and all, it's like the king wants his son or daughter to marry somebody for possession or whatever, and they're like, no, I want to marry the person I love, like the princess and the stable boy or something like that. Like, that's a weird example. Um, <laughs> But in Paul's day, in the Roman context, before, before Jesus reshaped culture with his values, marriage was purely for making babies and social status. It wasn't about love. And see, these verses are radical. All of these verses are radical because these were not the way that men would have treated their households. These verses, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of Paul, raises up the people in society who are held down, the women, the children, the slaves, in Jesus, women are to be elevated to a place of love and equality and respect. Paul is instructing husbands in Christ-like love. And Christ-like love is a love that sacrifices himself for his bride. Husbands, we are called to die for our wives. This is the high standard that Jesus calls us to, and it's the standard that he's going to hold us account to. Do not be harsh with her. This means being domineering, abusive, grumbling. Or, or you know what else this means? It means simply just not being gentle. Are you gentle with your wife? Husbands, and guys who hope to be husbands one day, listen to how God is instructing you to love your wife. Don't lash out with your words. Oh boy, I've been convicted so bad this week. Don't you dare use your physical strength to dominate her. Don't you dare be bitter towards her. She is your sister in Christ. She is made in the image of God. She has been saved at the cost of the blood of Jesus Christ, so treat her as such. And even more terrifyingly, I was thinking about this. I think about how I would react, what I would do if a man was mistreating my daughter. Well, your wife, or your future wife, is a daughter of the King of Kings. So what do you think God is going to do to you if you mistreat her? I can't wait to be an intimidating father-in-law someday. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> But I ain't got nothing on God. And I want to be really clear about this. Husbands, if we are being harsh with our wives, we are not being godly. But to love our wives with Christ-like love is honoring to him. And just as kind of a little segue, it's important to note that these instructions for marriage are not about imposing societal gender norms, okay? This is not what he's talking about. 
These are principles. This is not saying, I don't know, that men go out to work and women stay at home or anything like that. In fact, if we are following or imposing social gender norms, then we're listening to culture and not to Jesus. We're obeying what culture says and not what Jesus says. Instead, we have freedom in Christ to obey him, to submit and to love, and then work out what this kind of marriage looks like for us. The biblical picture for for Christian marriage is beautiful because when we follow God's design for marriage, what we get is, is a loving partnership of cooperation in which both husband and wife lower themselves to raise the other up and where the husband continually and consistently gives himself up for his bride. For too long, one word of the Bible has been, abu- has been used to justify the oppression and abuse of women. And instead of spending so much time misusing the word submission, men and husbands need to focus more on loving their wives and giving themselves up for her. So there is no biblical mandate for, for husbands making unilateral decisions and, and just expecting his wife to follow along the way. This is not what is in mind here. Instead, if I can be a little bit more practical, instead decisions are to be made together as the wife puts her husband first. Yes, but as the husband puts his wife first. I've heard people ask the stupidest question. Well, what do you do if, a, a, if, if you make a choice that your wife isn't on board with? Does she just have to submit? Well, you're an idiot. I'm sorry. That's mistaken. If you're focusing on that, then, then your heart is in the wrong place. You're not loving your wife in a Colossians 3.19 way. It should never be that way. The goal is mutually honoring one another by, by making decisions together and moving forward with things at a pace that, that honors one another. And will we always get it right? No, of course not, because we're all sinners. Remembering back uh, over our marriage, I think I just made the decision uh, when we had been married not that long, to get a dog and just went ahead with it. But then I was also remembering back and Healy named our firstborn without asking me, so guess we're even. <laughs> um, this, is not, I, this is not the place to uh, air your um, disagreements. No, we're good, we're good, we're good. That's a joke. But the point is, we won't always get it right, will we? We extend grace to one another. And, and, and as we saw last week in verse 12, what does he say? Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. We're to be compassionate towards one another. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And think about it this way. To submit to somebody means to put their needs before your own. That's really what this means. It's putting them in front of yourself. And to love somebody means to give yourself up for them. So in marriage, there is a mutual, mutual lowering of the self for the good of the other. John Stott, who's, he's, he's passed away now, but he's an old preacher, and he put it this way. He said, submission and love are two aspects of the very same thing, namely that selfless self-giving. Isn't that beautiful? Selfless self-giving, which is the foundation of an enduring and growing marriage. One last thought on this before I move on. In Romans 12, verse 10, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. In my notes, I've written undo one another. Don't undo one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now imagine our marriages look like this. Husbands continually asking, how can I honor my wife through my thoughts, my words, and my actions? And wives continually asking, how can I honor my husband in everything I think, say, and do? 
And if we're honest, who doesn't want to be part of that kind of marriage? The kind of marriage, that kind of marriage is good for society. It's good for raising kids. It's, it's good for the church. That kind of marriage is honoring to Christ. So next we see in the household that we must honor Christ in our parenting. Look at verses 20 and 21. I mean, it's just like Paul kind of just was, I was going to say a rude phrase, but just punching me in the heart this week. Verse 20, 21, children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So here's the thing about parenting. Everybody has their own ideas. Everybody thinks they are right. But in actual fact, we're all just making it up as we go along, right? Parenting, for most of us, is basically just 18 years of winging it. The Lord, however, has clear instructions on how we are to raise our kids. And again, even if you don't have children, don't switch off, because you might, God might bless you with kids someday. And even if you never have kids, us parents need our church family to help us to raise our kids to know Jesus. So Paul gives instructions for children to obey their parents. Now, this is becoming more and more countercultural these days, isn't it? Not that long ago, it would be pretty normal and non, uh, uh, non-controversial to say children obey your parents. But many people today would not encourage children to learn obedience. Schools of thought, uh, Laura and I were talking about this this week, schools of thought like gentle parenting say we shouldn't tell our kids what to do. Instead, just let them know what needs done. So, example, instead of saying, go and put your rubbish in the bin, you would say, that rubbish goes in the bin. Another example is positive parenting, which is a school of thought which seems to be antithetical to Colossians 3.20, and it says that obedience is a problem. It says, obedience implies that a child is doing something without any choice, simply complying with a command. Demanding obedience thus comes at a high cost of squashing a child's self-esteem and the ability to learn self-discipline. Now, I'm no expert, but I've known my daughter for almost six years, and I could wait 66 years, and she's not going to learn discipline on her own. No way. But here in Colossians 3, the call on children is to obey their parents, and so the call on parents is to raise our kids in obedience to teach them to obey. Parenting is about Two things. It's about protecting your kids from the world and preparing them for the world. And when they're small, you probably do more protecting than you do preparing. And then as they start to get older, uh, you you do more preparing than protecting. And teaching them obedience will be part of both protecting them from the world and preparing them for the world. We want and need our kids to obey instructions like look both ways before you cross the street or don't get into... Cars with strangers, or don't stick a crayon up your nose. We need them just to obey those things, because if they don't, they'll be in danger. Likewise, learning obedience prepares our children for the world, because obedience to parents establishes boundaries that are necessary just to get through life somewhat successfully. To be a functioning adult, you need to know how to respect boundaries. You need to know how to obey the law and obey your boss at work. And if you don't, you're not going to have a very happy life. It's going to be difficult for you. Now listen, I want to be clear about this. Paul is not saying that parents have free reign to make their kids do anything they want. As much as it's really tempting for me to turn my kids into wee servants to make them just go and get everything I need when I'm sitting on the sofa, this is not what Paul has in mind here. Christ-honoring parents should have the best interests of their children at heart. 
so that obedience becomes something that is actually good for the child and not bad. And we also need to recognize that not all of us had good experiences of being parented by our earthly parents. And abusive parents are a complete distortion of God's good design for family. As the most vulnerable, children are to be protected and cared for and loved. And the problem is that as we rightly want to avoid abusive behavior at all costs, sometimes we we overcorrect and then, then shy away from teaching our kids discipline or obedience. But the solution is to, to the, abu- the, the problem of abuse and mistreatment of kids is not to reject discipline and reject obedience that we see in earthly parents. The solution is to look to the only one true and good parent, to God our Father, and learn from Him. This is what Paul does. In verse 21, he addresses fathers because in his context, the, the fathers had the last word and the ultimate say in the home. But we can widen that out to both parents. So parents are to love their kids as our Father, as God the Father loves us. What does he say? Not provoke them, lest they become discouraged. This means that the parents won't be overly stern. We won't withhold affection. We can provoke our kids to discouragement uh, by being overbearing, by being heavy-handed. And this can have the opposite effect of encouraging them in the faith. Instead, we need to be encouraging to our children. Our goal should be that that our children are encouraged to live in ways that are honoring to Jesus. And listen, we discourage our kids in all kinds of ways by either underplaying or even overplaying their achievements, or we can ignore them or, or, or refuse to apologize when we've done something wrong. We can discourage them by disciplining them when they don't deserve it, just because we're tired or impatient or annoyed or can't be bothered with them in that moment. And I know that for me, this is a big one. How many times have I discouraged my kids because I just can't be bothered with them? But the goal is to parent in a way that honors Christ by parenting in a Christ-like way. We can and must raise our kids in obedience to us, not so they learn to obey us, but so they learn to obey God. That's the goal. We can and must raise our kids by encouraging them because in this way they learn what the love of the Father towards His children is like. A love that that doesn't provoke us but encourages us, that builds us up. And this way of parenting honors Christ. So we honor Jesus in every part of our lives, in marriage, in parenting, and finally then, we honor Christ in our work. Look at verses 22 to uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. Bond servants, obey everything, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ the Lord. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, we need to be clear about what Paul's intention here is. This is not Paul's answer to the issue of slavery. And we need to be clear, absolutely clear, that the Bible forbids slavery. People should not be stolen and bought 
and sold as property. Paul is is in no way endorsing slavery, but his intention here for Christian households is to speak into how to exist within that broken system. And in the context of the Roman household, slavery was was a complex issue, right? It was not racially based, first of all. This was not taking people from from their natural home place and stealing them away. And it was not always lifelong servitude. And if it was, it was usually out of choice. The word slave here, we've translated it as bond servant. It describes people who entered in a household to work for the family. They became part of the household. They were cared for and looked after as they worked as part of the household unit. And so I'm not going to get into the, the, the issue of, of slavery right now because I don't think that's what Paul's doing. Not because I want to avoid it, but because the text isn't going there. But we, we can apply these instructions to our work lives as employees and employers or even being self-employed. And there are four ways that Paul says we should honor the Lord in our work. Firstly, we work with integrity. We see this in verse 22. Paul says, don't just work by way of eye service. In other words, don't just make it look like you're working. Now, one summer, I had a job in a factory. And my job was to stand in front of a machine as boxes went through and were wrapped in plastic. It was riveting stuff, as you can imagine. And then if something got jammed, I would stop the machine, open it up, and fix the boxes, and off it would go again. But after about three days in the job, I learned that if I got bored and wanted a wee break, I could just pick up a box. Any box, even an empty box would do, and just go for a wee dander around the factory. And as long as you're carrying a box, no manager or boss is ever going to stop you because you look like you're working. It was great. But this is not the way Christians are to work. Paul says that in our work, we shouldn't only put on a performance. Don't just work whenever your boss is looking. Work with integrity. You're not there just to be a people pleaser, he says. But fear the Lord. Your boss isn't your ultimate authority, even though he might feel like it sometimes. The Lord is. So be honest in your work. Put in a shift. Do what you're being paid to do. And maybe even with the age of working from home, it's it's easier to be tempted to skive off a wee bit. (laughs) Or do things that make it look like you're at your desk when you actually are. Maybe the old uh, like freeze frame on the Zoom call or something. <laughs> but because we fear the Lord, not the men and women that have authority over, over us in our jobs, because we fear the Lord, because He is our master, we will have sincerity of heart and work with integrity. Secondly, we'll honor Christ in our work as we work wholeheartedly. We see this in verse 23. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now, working wholeheartedly does not mean that your job becomes your life. I know that's a temptation sometimes. Your career is not the most important thing in your life. But it is to say that while you are working, while you're at work, you put your hearts into the job at hand. Give your best effort and do a good job. And the reason is that we're working not for people, but for the Lord. I was reminded of God's work in creation this week. You know, at the end of each day's work, if you want to put it that way, what did God do? He stepped back and he looked at it and he said, that is good. My work here was good. And this is what we should be able to say too. We should pursue excellence in our work because we are working, not for what some person says, but we're working for the Lord. So tomorrow when we go to work, Let's make an effort and strive for excellence. R. Kent Hughes says that work that is truly Christian is work that is well done. 
In other words, if you're a Christian in your job, work well. Do it well. Put a shift in. Work wholeheartedly. Thirdly, we work with a kingdom mindset, and this honors Jesus in our work. Paul says in verse 24 and 25 that because we are working for the Lord, we know that our reward is not our paycheck at the end of the month, but rather our reward is our eternal inheritance. And sometimes in work, we lose this eternal perspective, don't we? We work hard in our jobs, rightly, and we get our paycheck, and we feel that we've been provided for. We even feel that we've earned our own provision. But the idea that our work is our provision is an illusion. Your job, your boss, your business, or whatever it may be, is only temporary, right? So think about this. As much importance as you gave your work, as you gave your job, as you gave your business, pretty soon, and I mean pretty soon because you're going to die or retire pretty soon, even if you're young, not that you're going to die young, you understand what I'm saying. In the context of, of history, 30 or 40 years of your job is not that much. It's temporary. It's going to be gone. It is a good gift. Of course it is. A good gift from the Lord as his way of providing for you and your family and all your material needs. But it's a temporary provision. Your work cannot provide you an eternal security. Your job, yeah, it's going to be able to put clothes on your kids and and put food on the table for 30 or 40 years. But these things are worthless compared to an eternal inheritance. Our jobs can do nothing to meet our eternal need. And this is why we need to have a a kingdom mindset, knowing that from the Lord, verse 24, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. God is our ultimate authority. Our real reward is not the comfort that a good job can bring. Our reward is our eternal inheritance with Christ forever. And this also means, in verse 25, that, that a kingdom mindset means that we don't get overly concerned or frustrated when we are unfairly treated in work. Ours is not to pursue revenge or, or, or personal justice when we're wronged. But instead, a kingdom mindset trusts that God will provide all our needs, our greater reward is in heaven, and that he is judge over all, and that he will repay all wrongdoing. He'll repay all wrongdoing. So we can trust the justice of God. And and that's not to say that we let people walk all over us. But we carry a deep peace that God is in control and he will make all things right. It also means that we can work freely and, and heartily and stand up for others who are being walked over. Trusting that God will make all things right. For in him there is no partiality. This means that those who don't work in the way that we're told to or the way that we're instructed here and also those who miss people who work with them and for them will be judged according to those deeds. This is why finally then he says we must work justly and fairly. Chapter 4 verse 1 Paul says that, that we need to treat those in our employment justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, if you find yourself in a position of authority in work, then this is how you must behave. Some of you employ people. Some of you are managers. Some of you have your own businesses. And followers of Jesus won't boss people around or use our position for our own gain. And we certainly won't use and abuse people. 
Instead, we will be just and fair. We will pay people what they deserve. We will listen to their concerns. We will treat everyone equally and hold everyone to the same standards. Why? Because we have a master in heaven. You know, once you're given in a position of authority in life or whatever, you kind of get this, we get illusioned by the fact that, oh, I have some authority. But whatever minuscule level of authority you have melts away compared to the authority of Jesus in heaven. And he's the one that we're all accountable to. In every aspect of what Paul is saying here for our households, for, for marriages, for parenting, for work, what Paul is saying is for the Christians... There's only one authority, and that is the Lord Jesus. And so we work with integrity. We work wholeheartedly with a kingdom mindset, being just and fair. And it's this kind of work that honors Jesus. So in everything we do, we honor Christ in every part of our lives. This passage gives specific examples in some of the most foundational and important areas of our lives. But the goal is to honor Jesus in every part of our lives. And here's the really amazing thing about this. In all these instructions for marriage, for parenting, for work, we are honoring Christ by following his example. Let me point this out. See, Jesus submits to the will of the Father. The night he was betrayed in the garden, he literally prayed, sweating blood, saying, Father, look, if it's possible that there's any way I don't have to go through with this, let it be so, but nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. But he's also our husband who willfully and gladly lays down his life in sacrifice for the good of his bride. He loves us and he laid down his life for us. Jesus is the child, the son of God who willingly obeys the father. Even though he was equally God, he didn't try to cling on to that. Instead, he emptied himself in obedience to the father. But he's also the parent. Isaiah 58, and we're going to read this when we come into Advent. Isaiah 58 describes him as the everlasting father. His name shall be called everlasting father. A father who doesn't provoke us, but who loves us and disciplines us and cares for us in ways that encourages us and builds us up. Jesus is the slave, the servant, the one who came not to be served, but to serve. He carries out the will of the Father, working wholeheartedly for the Father, knowing that from the Father, he will receive an eternal reward. The reward of being crowned with many crowns. The reward of being raised in victory to reign and rule over all. At the end of his day's work, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. But here's the really incredible bit. Jesus is the master who gave up being the master to become the slave. He became the servant of all. He took on the life of a servant and he died the death of a slave on the cross. The cross is a slave's death. And so when we think of this, the one through whom and for whom and by whom everything that was made was made, the, 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 image, the, the, the visible image of the invisible God, the Lord of all, the one who is in all and the, word, the one who is all, Took on the death of a slave. Gladly submits to the will of the Father. Isn't harsh. Doesn't provoke. So of course we owe it to him, to honor him in every aspect of our lives, don't we? And listen, here's what I realized about this. I, at the start, you know, the last few weeks, I was a little bit nervous, honestly, about coming to this passage. But the more I go into this the past two weeks, 
This is an incredible passage. Because as long as our focus is on ourselves, which mine often is, and not on Jesus, then I'm going to find loads of stuff in the Bible to complain about and grumble about and rebel against. But when my eyes are fixed on Jesus, when our eyes are fixed on him, we can willfully and gladly submit to him and offer every part of our lives to him and offer our whole lives as a living sacrifice to him. He is our master in heaven. Verse 17, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Come Holy Spirit, speak to us. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that as Barbara reminded us that it's true and is living and is active. Thank you, Lord, that you've been speaking now to your church. I pray, Lord, as we... Uh, we, we, we listen to instructions that sometimes feel difficult for us, Lord, that, Father, would you just come to us in mercy and in grace, show us that your word is good, help us all, Father, to willingly submit to, to the Lord Jesus, to his will for our lives, because he is the one who has given up everything for us. Father, I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you yet, Lord, that you would appear to them as good and gentle, as the bride who lay, as the husband who lays down his life for the bride, as the as the, the, the as the master who becomes the slave to win our freedom. And Lord, I pray that as we come to your table and take your meal again, Lord, that you remind us of the great cost that you've done all these things. And that we would come in thanksgiving and celebration and joy, knowing that because of you and because of what you have done, Lord Jesus, we go free. We have life. Lord, may we honor you in everything we say and do, in word and in deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Uh, we're going to come to the Lord's table like we do every Sunday.